Joining us now, Lieutenant Governor of the great state of North Dakota, Brent Sanford. Lieutenant Governor, it's great to see you. Um, thank you for giving us some time today. I want to do a little legislative recap with you. So let's start with uh, a lot happened this session. For the people watching, the people at home in North Dakota, what's the best thing you got done for the people of North Dakota in this session? Well, I have to say keeping taxes down, property tax relief continued, um, kept budget on track during a bi during a biennium that included a pandemic, and uh, um, actually reducing a couple of taxes that people might not have noticed, and doing away with almost doing away with the coal severance tax for one. Um, I think that that was that's pretty historic to be able to do something like that after going through a pandemic. But but the you know as far as keeping the holding the line on taxes and and growing government, we also. Uh, um, are super excited about the, the trifecta of legacy fund bills. And so when you hear the governor and I talk, we'll be talking about the legacy trifecta with House Bill 1425 was reinvesting up to 20% of the actual principal, actual corpus of our sovereign wealth fund, the legacy fund from the oil and gas taxes within the state boundaries of North Dakota. That's something that we didn't have that specific legislative intent before this point, and now we do. That's very specific in House Bill 1425. That's gonna open up a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurs, as well as low cost financing for political subs, which indirectly keeps taxes down as well. Um, the second piece of that trifecta was something really important to, to the, the Valley, really important to Fargo, Moorhead, West Fargo area. Uh, House Bill 1380 was the bonding bill that was uh, utilizing another stream of those earnings from our legacy fund Again, oil tax dollars, revenues from that legacy fund to repay bonds for infrastructure. And the lion's share of that, 430 million out of the 680 is for the FM diversion to finish out that project and fully fund the state's legislative intent on supporting the diversion. The third piece of that legacy fund trifecta is House Bill 1380. House Bill 1380 was representative like Mike LaFour from Dickinson, was um, um, Senator Ron Sorvog from the Senate side pushing through how are we going to handle and address the citizens' concerns about what is the legacy fund doing for me? And I, the last two things I mentioned with investments out of the fund, low interest loans out of the fund and, and bonding to pay for infrastructure out of the fund, how does that affect citizens by keeping that property tax base down by having the state pay for some of these projects and also having capital for new companies. But, but what else, what, how does this really affect me? And the earnings stream coming off of an $8 billion fund is now up to the five to $700 million range. And so that's a lot of funds coming into the general fund that have to be reinvested in the state as well out of whatever parameters you put around them. And so, and so instead of just having it be a general fund allocation to plug the budget holes, what are we gonna do to be visionary and transformational with that? And um, speaking of the bonding, the first, the first $150 million had to come out to pay for those bonds out of the out of the estimated um, next time we're estimating 776 million of legacy earnings and so 150 million had to come out to pay for those bonds um, also sending back road money back to the local political subdivisions of 60 million is the intent and the the bucket that I am most excited about is what was called other legislative purposes and they fought about this until the last week of the session of of are we gonna have university research coming out of legacy fund earnings? Are we gonna have a specific amount specified, set aside for that? Uh, Representative Nathy in Bismarck was an, an, uh, not only a proponent of, a sponsor of House Bill 1425 for legacy investments, he also was on 1141, which is the lift bill, which is 
which is legacy investments for technology. And that really paid off a lar to a large degree in the Red River Valley with, with Fargo Grand Forks companies utilizing 15 million last session for new start companies. Um, you know, all, they're basically technology-based companies that are in that early phase that need some startup money and investment equity. And these are, these are in the small, in, in the, in subordinated debt. They're, they're, they're loans with low interest and it's to the commerce department, very flexible repayment on those. And so, so Lyft was another area that we wanted to see come into this earnings conversation on House Bill 1380. What we ended up with was actual, I'm looking at it right now, three different buckets. One is very important to everyone in the state and that's tax relief. That's up to 50 million out of that 293 million of other legislative purposes. The, the second piece is the Clean Sustainable Energy Fund up to 30 million. I'll get that to, to that in a second. And then the last one is what was important to Senator Sorvog and Representative Nathy in, in terms of the bills that they were supporting this session. And that's research, innovation and workforce up to $30 million of continuing continuing funding from those legacy earnings. So I, I feel we're really tackling a lot of those big big ticket items that people have been talking about for the four years we've been in office and the years before us. What are we going to do with these legacy funds? And we feel there's a great roadmap and plan moving forward to to utilize those, invest in our state, transform our economy, keep the, the, the price and cost of government, the size of government at, an, at a level and hopefully reducing and keep those taxes down as well. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, that was a lot there. So for the, the person at home, you would say, hey, the legacy fund is going to lower taxes, keep them steady. What's the yeah. translation? So, so the state is putting in another historic dollar amount of over billions of dollars of local property tax relief. And, and the, the main place you see that is, is $2 billion going out to K-12. And so when you look at your property tax statement, you'll see in the upper left corner, the state paid portion and it's a large portion. If that state dollar wasn't to come in, you'd have to have that increase on top of your property tax bill. And the state, before the oil boom, this oil boom, before the Bakken, the state was paying for around 25% of local K-12 education. Now the state is up to 75%. What that's done is allowed teacher pay to go from 47th, 48th, 49th in the nation to more like in the middle of the range of teacher pay. So we feel like we're we're getting the talent, we're, we're paying the teachers for, for the, the professional job they do, for the, the, the amazing responsibility they have with our children, respecting their their education, their, their competence, et cetera. And, and, but what that's done is brought a tremendous strain on the general fund, which again is funded through through the oil and gas taxes, largely um, this this amount. And, and so, so where we're, what we're doing is putting in more property tax relief at the local level through that. And in additional, um, this time we're up to 120 mills. So that's about a billion two for this next biennium. And, and that's, so you think about, again, those mills coming off paid for by the state, that keeps our property taxes lower. Um, there's also 187 million in property tax relief that's for county social services that would that cannot be levied at the local level. So we can't express enough how much this, the legislature and, and the administration have done to keep pushing dollars from the general fund, from the oil tax revenue streams that we have back to the local level to keep those taxes lower. So, and, and as you know, every time we talk, if you're if you have a problem with those property taxes increasing, look at what your assessment, what happened <laughs> to your assessment, and then you've got to go back to your 
your local city council, county commission, school board of why did those mills follow the valuation up? You shouldn't have needed that same increase to, to grow government in our local areas and local jurisdictions. So those local school board, county commission, city commission positions are very important to keep the spending down and not just not just rise that spending up with the valuation increases. Lieutenant Governor, you, you read my mind. I guess if you don't mind, because I know people, we always hear, hey, the state's paying down this, hasn't really worked to lower property taxes. And it seems like right now with all this COVID money, some local jurisdictions, some shit cities, I don't know if this is the right term, but I think you could interpret our wash and money. So coach us through, what's the conversation? You're a mayor. What's the conversation people watching right now should have with their local mayor, city council person in order to keep their taxes, not even just steady, but down because you guys are spending so much money on, on the schools. Right. So, so the conversation, this is very, this is, this is what we went through during the Bach. And I can tell you when, when your community grows 10 times and the valuation of individual properties was rising at the, the max of 40% a year for a while, we had to reduce mills, reduce mills, reduce mills, keep reducing the mills so that the person's property tax that is staying in the same house throughout this exponential growth doesn't see their property taxes rising at that same rate as the rest of the city. And so, so you have to be cognizant of what is an individual taxpayer looking at and, and, the, and the ways that it can actually work to our advantage as a taxpayer is if the cities receive extra money that can be utilized for infrastructure projects that normally would have been specialed out or added onto the general levy. If it's something that the schools can utilize some of these funds to, to, to actually reduce the amount they're asking for from the property taxpayer. The amount that's coming from the, from the state is an actual, another record of 10,200 or 300 or so per pupil. Yeah. And so that's gonna be, that's gonna be a, a constant. So there should be no blame able to come back at the legislature or the state for the property tax mill levy from the schools. If you, if you take into account the federal money that's coming in, there's, there's gotta be accountability of, of, can this come back as a reduction to the mills you're asking for from the property taxpayer? So basically go to your local people and say, hey, cut the mills and continue to have that conversation. So we talked about some of the big accomplishments. I think anytime you go into a session, I would presume you've got sort of an idea of things that you want to accomplish. We're like, oh, we just didn't quite get there. I yeah. guess what was the, the biggest thing that you thought we're going to get this done this session, but you didn't? Well, there aren't very many. As a matter of fact, I was just I was just talking through with our, our chief of staff and and um this is this might sound kind of silly, but I don't know how many people are paying attention to. I'll bring attention to it that the, the um, electronic pull tab machines when they when these things passed out two sessions ago and then and then were further clarified last session. People were envisioning a, a a tabletop type unit where you're kind of like when you're waiting at the Olive Garden and you have the this, this handheld machine to play on, and it turns out all of a sudden two years later they show up as as slot machines all over the state, not at, not at the reservation casinos and not in Las Vegas and, and not in, on a riverboat casino, but they're, they're showing up in, in, in a lot of bars and a lot of, of uh, DFWs, et cetera. And, and so there was a lot of conversation from the attorney general's office about trying to get a handle on administration of these. We saw the general fund tax from gaming go up five, six, 10 fold from, from the, the vast increase of people actually playing pull tabs to playing these e-pull tab machines. And, and so there was talk about a moratorium, putting a moratorium in place so that um, there, there's a there's roughly 3,000 machines today. And that is more than the number of of, uh, of slot machines in the, in the reservation casinos, by the way, which is 
so it's phenomenal growth in a short amount of time. And there was conversation with the attorney general's office, with our office, with obviously that the tribal chairs and the reservation casinos are seeing drastic drops in revenue. And and some of the charitables concerned about, you know, this is this is really fast growth. Do we do we have a handle on the accounting for it all, the regulation of it all? Does the attorney general's office have the staff? And so we were looking to get a moratorium and study it. And anybody in the pipeline can uh, can uh, uh, can still apply and and look for getting those 10 units per per venue that they can find a place to put them um and a venue with an alcohol license etc and and those conversations went nowhere and and it's it's something where we'll we'll see what happens in the interim what happens next session with with what happens to that program um and, you know another one is is um, um we we did see we did see HIF dollars come back, which was a scary one for me. It's something I saw the benefit of housing incentive fund money with a state-led program for low-income housing that really helped us during the oil boom days. I was I helped Governor Dalrymple and and the, and the North Dakota Housing Finance craft that in the, back in the day during the oil boom era, and it's turned into an, a very valuable state tool because federal dollars are very have, very have a lot of strings attached and they're hard to make them work for every program you want to put in place. And, and so you see housing like the LaGrange, the LaGrave up in Grand Forks and the Edmonton and Bismarck that are actual apartment buildings where, where people that find themselves homeless can end up with an apartment and stay in that apartment until they get their feet on the ground. So all of a sudden they can have an address, have a warm place to go, bring their kids, have a place to settle in and it's, and it's rent free. And these things have, have proven to save resources at the local level of not having people riding around in police cars on the cold nights, not having to try to round people up and move into warmer, warmer buildings, et cetera, at night. And they've been just a, a real, a real good thing for Grand Forks and Bismarck for the communities as far as community resources. And, and that was one that we worried had gone away from us. We did get some funding back, you know, so that yeah. this session funding was not the problem. <laughs> there the funds were available. Despite the pandemic, we didn't have to dip into our budget stabilization rainy day fund because we had a really strong start right up until the point COVID started. The oil and gas taxes were far ahead of budget. All the tax revenues were ahead of budget. And we kind of cruised through the, the pandemic with the oil came back. So it wasn't as, as much of a crisis we thought we might be having to look at for the next biennium because oil's, oil prices are back. Um, we have an issue with not drilling enough new wells because of the concern with DAPL, which is another topic for another show, I would assume. But, <laughs> but um, anyway, the revenue picture was okay. And, and partially because, because $1.4 billion were dumped in by the feds and with, with increasing amounts still coming from the feds, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a head scratcher. It's, it's something where you, you saw a few bills in place of, well, we want to be able to come back as legislature and decide what to yeah. do with this. And, it's, it remains to be seen. We don't know what the strings will be. It's very similar to last year. All of a sudden you knew you had this amount of money and we were just fine tuning during July, August, September, all the way till December of how to actually utilize the funds and not have federal auditors coming back and, and charging you back. And so that it, that's how it'll be again. And all indications are it's not going to be extremely flexible. It's not going to be extremely useful for the states that it kept their economies going, ironically, and it's very tilted towards those urban areas that that had a lot of shutdowns, and and uh, it's it's going to be really interesting. It remains to be seen what the effect is, let alone from our state budget, but what's going to happen inflation-wise, what's going to happen with the nation and our economy from from all of this stimulus. Well, I, 
boy, that's going to be fascinating to watch. And that's what I meant by a lot of these cities and maybe even the state just seem to be a wash in cash. And yet the tax rates, I know you said you kept them steady, but I haven't seen a lot of people going, hey, my taxes are going down. Let's talk about this. Um, right now, Governor Bergen, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, has SB 2030 on his desk. That's the bill that would say, hey, uh, NDSU, higher ed, um, you're going to miss out on funding if you stay tied to Planned Parenthood. Um, there's conversations that Governor Bergen's going to veto that. Obviously, he hasn't done anything with it yet. What can you right. tell us about the latest on that? What do you think he's going to do? Well, I figured you'd ask me that. That's what that one, as the chair of the challenge grant fund, I can tell you that that that's probably the biggest swing in the miss from from personally from my standpoint. I chair the challenge grant fund, and so there's a lot of misunderstanding of what that is, and that and that would be from the legislators as well, listening to testimony on Senate Bill 2030. But the challenge grants are uh, a match program that the legislature put in place, I'm assuming around 10 years ago, it, it predates me by quite a while. And it was during the Drew Wrigley stage anyway, at it, it's, some it's time. So I would say sometime in the last 12 years, this was implemented. And, and what it is is for the, the foundations of the public higher ed institutions, um, if they raise an endowment funds from private sources, from people like you and me giving to, to our, our alma maters, our favorite colleges in the state, and if you set up an endowment for a scholarship, then, then the state would kick in a matching 50% match to that. And it became the best way of fundraising for, for these alumni foundations, for these foundations raising money for scholarships for the institutions. When someone that's, a, that's, that's accumulated wealth looks at it, like if I give you a million, how much is the state gonna match? 500,000 is the answer. So, so that's a 50% return on their investment is how it's viewed and it became just a wonderful tool for, for the foundations to use in raising money. Unfortunately, this was viewed for some reason by some of the bill sponsors as matching dollars for potentially for Planned Parenthood grants. And that's not the case. These dollars never went into the budget of NDSU, UND, or any of the other smaller institutions. These stayed at that foundation level. If you raise the money from private donors, the state would match 50%. So how this became the vehicle for, for the Planned Parenthood and NDSU concern is it's I don't I don't know how it happened. Do you think it was do you think it was more of a leverage point because we all know higher ed wants and needs money? You think that was part of the purpose is go hey look we're going to cut off some of your funding if you continue to work with Planned Parenthood. That's what it turned into. But you know I and I talked to the bill sponsor at length and expressed my frustration with why this ended up in that bill because I said look look at the votes for these amendments look at the votes for the bill in final form, which really is is what I would call and what is called in the, in the trade a hog house bill, where basically there's a bill that starts at something and completely gets taken over by something else and, and new language yeah. is added that's not germane to the original bill. So this was basically hog housed into that NDSU cannot contract with Planned Parenthood any longer. And and so I asked, why, why not a standalone bill? Why not put out a standalone bill? I think that the legislature has proven the conservatism that you know, with the support that this bill ended up with, even in the form that it was, knowing that they basically had laid waste to this this popular program, the Challenge Grant program, that you still had the votes that you saw in the House and the Senate. Why that was not a standalone bill? I mean, this, this is kind of inside baseball, but this is really, to me, that 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 should have been a standalone bill, and it, and it's not. And so now we have Senate Bill 2030, which is still has the money in there for Challenge Grants, but it's really entwined to to that that employees could be subject to misdemeanors, et cetera, and fines, and, and the universities would have 
of fines of up to two point eight million dollars, and and that's quite a that's quite a percentage for some of these smaller institutions. So, needless to say, higher ed is in kind of an uproar about it, and, and looking at all the language and saying, could this be construed to be, if we receive grants from anywhere in the federal government where there might be strings to somewhere that that is that is, you know, that is conceived to have some some connection to Planned Parenthood or or abortion-related funding of some sort, and so there, it, it's it's right now. There's just a lot of confusion of what might happen with the bill, and I know there's been some folks trying to clarify that 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 might be fear-mongering to be pointing it out, but that's basically the controversy. Now it's now it's kind of like there's there's two bills. There was this original bill that was a great program that had nothing to do with putting dollars into the general fund of of the institutions. It was actually held at the alumni foundation level or the the, the, the foundation level. For the endowments for scholarships but now that's combined with a penalty clause for if you're doing business with with basically planned parenthood i mean it, it's, there's that language is not that specific but that's what everyone knows the intent is so does governor Bergen veto it or no i don't know this is something where i mean these we have two weeks the other thing is people don't really understand the process so once the bills the bills three-day limit stops when they sine die when they gavel out in their in the legislature adjourns basically and that turns into 15 days so there's basically two weeks to, to work through all the rest of this pile of bills that came and you can imagine the ones that came at the end are not easy ones there's yeah. there's a lot of bickering there was i mean some of this stuff was was back and forth and back and forth and to follow what they eventually finally did it's going to take a lot of review so this last that's why the i'm assuming that's why the powers that be over the years, over the last 130 years, have figured out that there's more time needed for that last raft of bills that comes your way because of the complications and the arguments and the last second changes. We're looking through the DOT, the DOT um, um, portions of township funding, etc., making sure we can take that language and match it to the federal dollars that'll be available for township money, and it, it, it might not have been done the right way. So we've got to check bill language. So anyway, it's one of the many bills that'll be done through the next two weeks. And, and you can imagine there's a lot, there, it, there's a lot of people that are weighing in on that bill. And there's a lot of people from both sides. There's people with zip codes from outside of North Dakota, but there's a lot of people from North Dakota that are saying, veto the bill. There's a lot of people saying, sign the bill. And so that's where it's at. So just for clarity, because some people are saying, hey, can we water this down and make it simpler? Is that the challenge grants are completely outside of anything associated with Planned Parenthood. Yeah, it was put in there potentially for leverage to get the governor to sign it and to make the university system go, OK, we'll abide by this because we want the challenge grant money. Is that a fair assessment on my part to make it easy? That was what the intent was. I okay. was Got it. Um, take us inside the mind of Governor Burgum, because I'm, I'm sure that you communicate with them on. I think many people see North Dakota as a very conservative state. There wasn't any sort of NCAA saying, hey, if you sign this transgender bill, we're going to not play sports there. So walk us through his thought process of vetoing um, the transgender bill for athletics. Uh, that one, again, was was folks reaching out from medical community, from from sports clubs, from economic development organizations, from from families, from students, from college student groups. And on one side, and then the other side was, was seriously, there's a case in Connecticut where this is something that is, it's coming, it's not here yet, but this is something that could be coming. And, and then looking at the different regulation that is that the NCAA has, that the Olympics are looking at, 
that high school activity association has in the end it was something where where um in, in the end it was it, it was something that that the governor likes to say this is this is really looking for a problem the problem isn't really here yet and you know this is and this is so that was i'm assuming that's kind of where the decision came down on that one but the but again weighing the voices on both sides and and in the governor's office we hear from both sides we don't just hear from one side or the other so i had a mom reach out to me and i just want to make sure i'm understanding the bill correctly um they were suggesting that because the bill became a law and yes you have to go through one year of hormone treatment but that's not necessarily long enough where you potentially potentially could have a a biological male who is transgender into be a woman but still have male physiology inside of a young woman's locker room getting ready to play sports and and go through what you do in a locker room is that accurate or well that that's that's part of the problem with this whole thing is where did we land and high school activities said that they they do have a handle on it they also said that they're ready but they're they don't they didn't have cases they could cite that are happening in north dakota right now and but the, you hear about these problems in in prison systems you hear about these problems you can imagine all the, the the case that you rattled off right there i mean that that's what that's what everybody's wondering about what do you do in these cases and 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 most of us that are that are in the capital i guess and that we're listening to these bills are hoping that this is something that interim committees take up and take and take a look at because when you have a conversation that's this hot there needs to be a way to get to the bottom of it. And oftentimes a one-page bill or a two-page bill is not going to be able to conceive everything that's around it. And, and that's a complicated bill. And if you talk to folks that are on either side of the issue, it women's, women in sports, women of LBGT, I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this is something where people on both sides agree, this needs to be discussed. And there needs to be more discussion and work through what happens. What happens as we move forward? pediatricians group had different ideas educators had different ideas and you know it's not an easy one as you can tell and somebody here i think uh i think hits the nail on the head you know i know governor Burgum talked about in his veto it's a local issue and i think one of the biggest things that we're talking about now uh within pov is be action oriented get out there and talk to your local leaders and and do some things speaking of that i you know one of the biggest issues going into the session when i was talking to legislators is hey We've got to stop these executive emergency powers. We no longer can have our governor be a king. Um, what happened there? Was there any movement in eliminating some of these emergency powers or not? Yeah, House Bill 1118 was signed. And so so there was a headline, you know, that in the forum that was basically kind of mocking, I guess, but governor signs a bill limiting his powers, you know. So, but 1118, House Bill 1118 was something that I was frankly kind of surprised there wasn't a bill that came right away in January, limiting powers, ending emergency, et cetera. And as, as, you, as you find out, this is, it's not that easy when you get 141 people together to decide what they feel the right answer is. And, and those that are leading the committees, leading the parties, leading the majority, et cetera, are looking at it like, what do we do for the next pandemic? And so 1118 brings the legislature back after 30 days if they so choose. It's something where it's something where um, if 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 the if the governor has to put in emergency orders during a, an event like we've recently had, then then after if if they request to come back, that the the I believe the emergency orders end if the governor doesn't bring them back into special session. So it's something like that where there was not a mechanism in place during COVID, 
And, and you have to know that the conversations were held constantly with majority leaders, minority leaders, committee chairs for human services, et cetera, during the pandemic. And I was a part of a lot of those conversations, but um, the, the mechanism was not in place. They did not have days left over to do it. And now there's a mechanism with House Bill 1118. And there was another bill that was Senate Bill 2124. It was, that was similar, that was broader, that was in, it was in just other emergencies such as floods and, and fires, et cetera. And that one was deemed to be, you know, really going beyond what you have to have your executive be able to do when you have those type of emergencies. But 1118 survived and came out of both chambers and the governor signed that one. So that, you'll have to look that one up. That one actually is, the headline is, Governor signed a bill limiting his executive powers, and that's that's what happened. That was a give that was necessary after all the anxiety from during this COVID time. There was a lot of people upset that 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 the executive branch was doing all the work. Where was the legislative branch? So now they would have a mechanism basically laid out that was be laid out by that bill. And, and with that, then did we also limit some of the powers of the state health director? Um, somewhat. Okay. Um, but that, but the. They also beefed the state health officer back up with with making you know a bill that passed that requires a state health officer to be a, a physician MD, and um, and now the at the very end one of the last bills was to combine human services and health together so you have a health and human services similar to the federal government so that would be larger more nimble organization is hope is the hope is the is, is the what they're what they're hoping for those that are the bill sponsors because there were there were some inefficiencies when nursing home administration is held is some of the things in, in, are done in the health department summary human services it's like they've got walls around them and actually different leadership etc it's not that easy to work back and forth between departments so they're hoping there's some streamlining there but the state health officer would then be part of that much larger larger organization got it Last question for you, sir, just to be respectful of your time. Um, I'm sure you're hearing this a ton. I am. I mean, you, you talk to business owners right now, and I've, I've got some of them saying to me, Lieutenant Governor, Chris, I'm offering an extra $5, $10 an hour, and I can't even get a person to fill out an application. So Montana recently said they're going to end the extra unemployment uh, pay due to the worker shortage. I'm just curious what you're hearing from our business owners. If you guys considered getting rid of this extra unemployment pay to get people uh, back to work. Yeah, that's a good question. It's something where we've seen what Montana has done. The the folks at at uh, workforce at, at uh, Brian Clipful runs um, workforce safety insurance. So WSI Andy runs jobs, the um, Andy job service, and so so he's seeing these claims. He's seeing what's happening with with um, with employers not being able to get back to business, not being able to get people back on to work, and. And, and that, that conversation happens every day with Brian and with our office on what's best to do there. Um, we're, we're, we're really are at a point where the economy, the employers need people to be back to work. And so, um, it, you know, it, sometimes it sounds cruel, I guess, to say we're not going to take those available benefits that could be there. But there, it's, a, it's an extreme burden on the state to administer and to put our share of that in as well as um, answering for those employers that can't bring people back to work. And that we're, you know, we're back in that phase of of all these job openings, tens of thousands of job openings again. And hopefully those that were severely disrupted by COVID, whether it's some kind of hospitality business, I mean, some of the restaurants are still not really back to where they were. Um, movie theaters, I can't imagine the, the revenue drop in a movie theater type investment. Um, but hopefully those, hopefully the folks that are in employed in those areas are 
able to be back working full time, have have you know back the same pay or better and benefits, etc. And then those investors in those businesses, hopefully they were able to find the resources through PPP, through the feds, and also through our different programs that we did through Commerce and the Bank of North Dakota. It's it's been a rough 14 months, Chris, and and this session was uh, clouded by anxiety and anger from COVID hangover, and it's also of executive order concerns and. The, the bills that you brought up that were the, the social concern bills that are, that are being addressed. But we, through it all, we've got some really good positives coming out the other side. Our Clean Sustainable Energy Authority bill is something where I've had three meetings this month or this week already that, that the new projects for energy development in our state are going to be moving us forward to the next 50 years. And, and we should be able to be seen as a national leader, even with this, this Biden administration watching and trying to to basically change everything we do here. But there's no reason we can't lead through it. We have the resources to do it and we've just got to all get moving forward. And I don't know what the impetus is going to be to get us off of this current environment we sit, but but we need to move forward together. <laughs> it might be a change in power in the house, but we will see. So, sir, I want to give you the last word um, and I'll frame it this way. How would you grade the session A, B, C, D, or F? And just last word, anything else you want to share? I haven't asked you. What a grade the session. I tell you what, the I've, I've been through three and I'm kind of a tough grader. I don't know if I'd ever give anything an A, but I, I, I think I'd give this one an A minus. I mean, this wow. is this is really positive legislation moved out to move us forward into the future with, I didn't even bring up career and tech centers that there was $70 million that was in the OMB bill, the Office Management Budget Bill, the last bill that's for career and tech center type projects. So the Career Academy that Bismarck has there's projects moving forward in other parts of the state. I think we finally have that funding mechanism to get Fargo moving forward with theirs. And that's really needed for the workforce bridging between between these high paying jobs that don't take a four year university job in high school and, and starting some of that work in high school and then bridging into the certificate programs and two-year programs that might not even be available from a trade school and just moving right into those jobs. It's very exciting. $70 million will be a lot of bang for the buck for getting really high skilled North Dakota youth ready to go into this 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 high tech workforce that we have. So we've got a lot of great things that happened. I, I, I'm I'd say a minus and no, I don't have anything else to offer. We covered a lot of ground as always. So thank you for that, Chris. Thank you. Can for I ask you one last question? I think this is a good question just to get your point of view, pun intended on it. But your take on what happened with Luke Simons during the session. How do you feel about the fact we were the first it says here, the first and only state to yeah. expel someone without due process or an investigation? Do you think that was handled? correctly would you like to see have done it maybe a little bit differently what's your pov on that i can tell you that was a really sad day for me watching and seeing that this has not been done this didn't even happen during the upheaval when they removed the governor in the in the 30s when the npl came in with a bang during the 100 years ago i mean this there were not legislators removed so it was a it was a very sad day to watch that and and to see to, to figure out how the process of work going forward is kind of scary when you think of if it's going to take a two-thirds vote there's a lot of days where any one of those legislators probably couldn't get two thirds to keep them there that day. When you're voting on different bills all the time, supporting different bills and initiatives, you're at some points you might have you might have two thirds of the people that mad at you. So it's it wasn't a good day for us. It wasn't. It's it's very sad. I, I hope we never see that again, and I hope we can just heal up and move forward, and and we'll, well see what happens in District 36 moving on as well. I think with that being said, you know, it wasn't like that was the first message for Luke, right? I mean, my understanding is that uh, he repeatedly had leadership say, hey, you know, you got to change the way you communicate. You got to do some things differently. So maybe there's a way leadership could have stepped in earlier. Is that a way to prevent it from being the sort of 
expel process or what do you suggest? Well, it's, it's difficult and it's difficult yeah. when you have the house has, as you know, the house has like basically four caucuses over there. So that gets to be complicated as well. If, if you're not, if you're not working cohesively together back in the days when, and I, the, if you will, the old timers, the people that were here, um, you know, 40 years ago, talk about when it was an even split of Democrats and Republicans, it was really strong in the caucuses. And at this point, we don't have that. And that could be a whole nother show too. But, but the communication is difficult. The, you know, where that communication rolls up and how it rolls up and, and what things get to that level of where the majority leader speaks to you or the caucus chair. I mean, it's, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm sure that, I'm sure that the, the, the leadership in the house has all kinds of ideas of what they could have done better and would like to do next time. And hopefully there's not a next time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Lieutenant Governor, you're always so gracious with your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, keep up the great work. We look forward to having you back because I'm with you. There's so much, so many great things happening with the energy sector here in North Dakota. Um, we'd love to have you talk about that too as well. Okay. All right. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate Thank your time. You, appreciate it very, very much. All right, we're going to continue the show here because I've got a lot of other stuff I want to be discussing as we let our great lieutenant governor uh, go and get on with the rest of his day. They're very kind of him. I mean, he just gave us over 30 minutes of his time. I do want to go through some of your comments here. Um, then also I want to get, get into, this, this is an obvious question and answer, right? But, but who's better? Should the UN or the United States be running our nation? I'm going to share with you a video that I think will open your eyes to just how powerful of an influence the UN, meaning the United Nations, is now having over uh, our government body. I mean, many of you talked to me about, Chris, it feels like it's a corporatocracy, that a lot of these politicians are puppets. With speaking of which, I'm sure you saw President Trump, the ban on him from Facebook continues. So Facebook continues to ban President Trump. He put out several statements today. I had a chance to speak with a RNC national spokesperson earlier today, so I'm going to share with you some of that. And some of the things that are happening within uh, the GOP, plus some new COVID vaccine information where they always say, follow the science, right? Follow the science. Well, there might be something else that people are following too. We're going to get to that in a moment. So just some comments here. Brianna, un unapologetic Christian, by the way, thank you for all your, your comments. It was wrong. That will never be made right. The poor man's name was Stain, talking about uh, Luke Simons. Then he goes on to say, could you do a full investigation, major problems? Um, I, I, you know, that stuff I don't know, but um, I guess we'll see. Uh, yes, Brianna, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, I appreciate you tuning in live. We are going to be doing, although my blood pressure has me refusing to watch the news lately. You know, I have a lot of people telling me that they just cannot watch the news anymore. One of the things that I mentioned there to Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford that I want to share with you we are an action-oriented show. So if you're someone who just wants to sit back on the couch and you know eat Doritos and whatnot, this might not be the right fit for you. This is going to be a very action-oriented show, as you heard there before. Um, and we're going to get to yours in a moment, Melissa, is that get actively involved in your local communities, please. Please, because we see what's happening now in our education system. In fact, I want to get into some of this. If I can find the right clips, um, I've had a very, very busy day, but I had some clips that I want to play for you, um, even from Noam Chomsky regarding education, what we've done to dumb people down and not question things. We need to start questioning authority. I've talked about this before, the old psychological study 
um, and I can't remember off the top of my head who did it, but where they would shock people. It would, they didn't really shock people, but they would have you believe that you were shocking someone in another room. And remember that person screaming, ah, stop it. I don't shock me anymore. Right. It was all made up, but they would have a person in a white coat where this person's like, wait a second, this person, I'm hurting this person. And they would go, oh, you signed up for this study. You should continue to shock them. And they would, they would do it. Why? Because we fall prey to authority. We don't say, wait a second, this isn't right. I had an incredible conversation with, and I don't want to drop names, but a, let's just say a major leader, major head football coach um, that has got an incredible name, incredible career. He said, Chris, I am so scared for the future of our nation because people are so selfish. He's like, we need to start teaching people, tell the truth and do the right thing. Even if telling the truth sometimes might put you in a bucket of hot water, it's the truth. You cannot deny the truth. And then getting people, including our politicians, <laughs> of course, our politicians, to do the right thing. Let's get to Melissa's comment because I think she's, I haven't perused this yet, Melissa, but I think you're bringing up something very important. Melissa says, all I could think about when he was talking about all the money the state is giving to K through 12 is how some schools are using that money to heavenly compensate people for getting the COVID vax. Melissa, thank you for that. I'm, I don't know if they're using that COVID money or not, but I remember we talked about this in Newtown. Newtown was giving out $1,500 after-tax bonuses, $1,500 after-tax bonuses to people within the education system to go get the COVID vaccine. Since you brought it up, um, I'm going to go there. Let's see, producer AJ has contacted me as well. Um, yes, thank you, producer AJ. We will get that done, but I want to get to some more of your comments that have been coming in. Um, let's see, what else do we have? One of you also had a comment up here before. I don't want to get to Richard says, does any one person in all of North Dakota politics have any ethics whatsoever? I, I would like to think so, but let me share this with you because this came up and since we just talked about the COVID vaccine, hopefully I'll get a chance as well to get to the Noam Chomsky piece that I want to play for you here. But this this came out just yesterday. And you can see my comment because what have you and I been told through this whole thing? Follow the science. Follow the science. Follow the science, right? Well, according to Breaking 911, Pfizer, 25% of Pfizer's total revenue in the first three months of the year came from the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, why do I say follow the science? Because really what that needs to say, and I'm just having fun on Twitter, follow the money. Follow the money. So speaking about following the money in the COVID-19 vaccine and Pfizer, let's take a look at some of the uh, donations here from Pfizer. Maybe I can get this a little bit bigger for you. Let's see what I can do. There we go. You can see here, uh, Joe Biden, $381,000. And this is from people that are associated with Pfizer. It can't come from the organization itself, but these are obviously the workers there uh, within uh, Pfizer. Democratic senatorial campaign, 195. DNC Services Corp, 132. RNC, 123. Donald Trump, 119. So 119 compared to 381, right? Interesting. Democrat congressional, congressional campaign, Republican congressional campaign, roughly the same. Uh, Bernie Sanders, John Cornyn. So this just gives you a little bit of an idea of where this money has gone. And I'm, I only bring up the money piece because of this. 
And you've got now, not only do you have 3.5 billion in just the first three months of the year for Pfizer, but let me ask you this before I share this with you. How many of you have heard about rampant COVID cases and or rampant COVID negative health impacts for kids two to 11? I don't know if I've heard any story like that. Do you know anybody that's from two to 11 that has had COVID, let alone anyone from two to 11 that has had a horrific reaction to COVID? Now, I'm not saying they're not out there. They very well may be out there. I just have not heard a lot of those stories. The reason I bring that up is now Pfizer wants to seek not just authorization through FDA, emergency use authorization for kids two to 11. Why are we gonna go and rush a vaccine that impacts your mRNA? Someday I'm gonna break down the mRNA aspect of this vaccine for you. I don't have the time today, but why are we gonna go get an emergency use authorization for a vaccine for kids two to 11 when I, I honestly, Thank you. This person says, I haven't heard of one. Haven't heard of one case from two to 11. And your family is living all over in different states. If someone's got you know some anecdotal stories there where they're hearing more than I am about kids two to 11, please share. Please share. Okay, I want to play um, this video for you. I just found this. And the question for you is, is it better to have you and I, people that see America first running our country, or is it better for the United Nations to be running America? I know that you and I know the answer to that, but I bring that up because I want to share this video with you um, regarding, remember the, the saying, bring back better, when Joe Biden started talking about, or no, excuse me, build back better. President Joe Biden's mantra was build back better. Well, check this out. We're going to play this for you. Boy, I've got so much great stuff for you, folks. Okay, here you go. We got that going. I'm going to get it to the beginning. We now have the opportunity to build back better than in the past, aiming at inclusive and sustainable economies and societies. In order to meet the challenges of the day, we can't just build back the way things were before. We have to build back better. Take a look at America today. Over 150,000 Americans are dead from COVID-19. We have a health crisis, an economic crisis, a racial justice crisis, a climate crisis exacerbated by Trump's denial of science, and America needs a plan to solve all of them. Over the last century, America has defined itself by rising to meet existential challenges. On this International Mother Earth Day, all eyes are on the COVID-19 pandemic, the biggest test the world has faced since the Second World War. We must act decisively to protect our planet from both the coronavirus and the existential threat of climate disruption. The current crisis is an unprecedented wake-up call. We need to turn the recovery into a real opportunity to do things right for the future. We'll make the biggest investment in manufacturing and innovation since World War II. Today, federal investment in research and development is at an all-time low. That's why I'm proposing historic research and development investment to sharpen America's competitive edge in new industries. As we spent huge amounts of money to recover from coronavirus, we must deliver new jobs and businesses through a clean, green transition. Second, where taxpayers' money is used to rescue businesses, it needs to be tied to achieving green jobs and sustainable growth. 
There's no more consequential challenge we have to meet in the next decade than the onrushing climate crisis. We'll meet this challenge by creating millions of jobs in a clean energy economy. Jobs that will ensure American automobile industry leads the world in manufacturing electric vehicles. Public funds should be used to invest in the future, not the past, and flow to sustainable sectors and projects that help the environment and the climate. We're going to make investments so by the end of my first term, we are going to be on an irreversible course to achieve net zero emissions, economy-wide, no later than 2050. Fiscal firepower must drive a shift from the grey to the green economy and make societies and people more resilient. In order to build back better, we have to ensure that all Americans have opportunities to generate wealth, especially communities of colour that have been historically left out of the benefits of an economic recovery. Fifths, climate risks and opportunities must be incorporated into the financial system as well as all aspects of public policy making and infrastructure. That's why I'm going to take on our successful Obama-Biden Small Business Fund and scale it up to 20 times the size so the black and brown small business owners have access to $150 billion in venture capital and low-interest financing. Greenhouse gases, just like viruses, do not respect national boundaries. We need to work together as an international community. Times are tough now in America, but we've been here before. We can do this. We can build back better. I'm looking forward to getting started as soon as we can. We must do all we can to save lives and ease the economic and social devastation. Crucially, we need to draw the appropriate lessons about the vulnerabilities and inequalities the virus has laid bare and mobilize investments in education, health systems, social protection and resilience. This is the biggest international challenge since the Second World War. Yet, even before this test, the world was facing other profound transnational perils, climate change above all. But multilateralism is not only a matter of confronting shared threats, it's also seizing common opportunities. We now have the opportunity to build back better than in the past, aiming at inclusive and sustainable economies and societies. Over the past few months, momentum has grown for what I call a global green new deal. To be so broad and to be so comprehensive because we are, we are outlining the green new deal. Okay, here we are. This is the $15 million mansion where Antonio Guterres lives and you see, He's got two separate UN security cars. These guys are driving in and they're driving out. No masks, man. I wanted to play that for you just to take a look at how similar, obviously, what the leader of the UN is saying and then what President of the United States, Joe Biden, is saying. And yes, this Brianna says, hmm, exactly. That's my point. And so what I wanted to do is, is have us go, wait a second, this is why we need to get involved in local politics. This is why we need to start taking action to make an impact on what's going on. Michael Coachman, thank you very much, Michael, for tuning in. I appreciate that very, very much. And I could go on and on and on. In fact, I want to try to find uh, one more video for you here that I've got. So just give me a moment, please. And I'm hoping that I can pull this up for us because I think it's important to watch uh, and then I'm going to have us think about 
what can we be doing? Okay, here's the videos. So let me well, let me is, let me so get yeah, this up. Let this commercial play, and then I can pull it up for us here. And think about this. You're going to see here in a moment, folks. This video is from quite some time ago. Okay, I mean this is not from yesterday. So this is the problem that we've had for a very very long time, and that's why earlier when we had Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford, I said, "Okay, Lieutenant Governor, you've been a mayor." You're talking about property taxes. We know that's a local issue. Walk us through what's the conversation that people should be having with our local leaders to ensure that we begin to lower taxes. I may not have the opportunity to play all this for you tonight, but I think many of us can understand, at least when I go out and talk to you, and I, I talk to people in our community, they are, parents especially, are freaking out about what's happening within our education, some might say indoctrination system. How do we change that? How do we begin to reverse that? I had a fascinating conversation. In fact, I should live stream that sometime for you soon as well. But yesterday I had an opportunity to go to um, West Fargo Cheyenne High School and talk to their AP government class. It was phenomenal. I did a lot of listening, but I want you to listen to it too. I want you to listen to it too, because there was very few, if any, conversations around economics. A lot of social conversation, conversations about the electoral college, social issues, but very few around economics. I think financial literacy right now is critically important within that demographic so that people are aware. They're not ignorant because when you're ignorant, what happens? Now, let's listen to Noam, Noam, Noam Chomsky here. This is from a while ago. Talk about the education system. And you tell me, you're going to see this is from a long time ago. What's changed? What has changed. The role of the media in a so-called democracy. Uh, I'm wondering how you see uh, the role of our educational system, what it's doing right now, what forces they're driving it, and what constraints are on it, and how should it operate? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I quoted the uh, Trilateral Commission view of the educational system, uh, namely it's a system of indoctrination of the young. And I think that's correct. It's a system of indoctrination of the young. That was the way the liberal. I mean, <laughs> that's not Rush Limbaugh, right? That's not Donald Trump. That's Noam Chomsky going, yeah, it's the indoctrination of the young. If we're not paying attention to our kids' education, somebody is, and it needs to be you and I. It needs to be you and I get involved with the school boards. It needs to be you and I talking to the teachers. It needs to be you and I perusing what's happening with our kids within this education, as Noam would say, indoctrination system. Well, elites regard it, and they're more or less accurate. Uh, so the educational system is supposed to train people to be uh, obedient, conformist, uh, not think too much, uh, douche told, stay passive, don't cause any crises in democracy, don't raise any questions, and so on. That's basically what the, what the uh, system is about. Uh, even the fact that the system has a lot of stupidity in it, I think, has a function. You know, it means that people are filtered out for obedience. If you can guarantee lots of stupidity in the educational system, you know, like stupid assignments and things like that, you know that the only people who make it through are people like me and like most of you, I guess, who are willing to do it no matter how stupid it is because, well, we want to go to the next step, you know. So, so you may know that this assignment is idiotic, the guy out there couldn't think his way out of paper bag, but you'll do it anyway uh, because that's the way you get the next class. Uh, and you want to make it so on and so forth. Well, there are people who don't do that. You know. uh, there are people who say, I'm going to do it. It's ridiculous, you know. 
uh, those people are called behavioral problems or uh, something like that. They end up in the principal's office or in the streets or selling drugs or whatever. And all of this is a technique for uh, selection for obedience. And I, have, I don't know how to prove this, but I have a feeling that when you go to the elite universities, you find more obedience and conformity, probably because you're getting the students who were better able to do it. You know? uh, well, all of that is functional. That's the way it works. But it, and it works right through graduate school. I mean, if you, there are, by the time you get to graduate school, it's already a little more varied because some real contradictions develop in the system. The problem is that you can't have progress this way. You know, now, especially in the sciences and engineering, that's a problem because the corporations need science and engineering. You know, if you don't have innovation, you're really in trouble. So they have to encourage creativity and independence because you can't get anywhere if you just copy what somebody told you. You have to be challenging things all the time, challenging everything, you know, uh, and thinking new thoughts and so on. And there you got a real contradiction. Uh, it's hard to train people to be creative and challenging and so on, and yet to ensure that somewhere else in their lives they're conformist and obedient and never think. So you have problems. That's a serious problem in Japan, incidentally. Uh, we think of Japan as this tremendous superpower, but that's very misleading. Uh, Japan, for example, is very poor in science, for example, and they're aware of it. And part of the reason is it's, such, it's, part, of the, it's part of the same thing that makes them good workers, obedient workers. It's a very obedient society, very deferential and conformist society. And one effect of that is that, you, you know, there are real constraints against independent, free thinking. And you see it in the sciences very clearly. Uh, the, uh, but it's a problem here, too. So there are those contradictions. And when you get to graduate school, they're beginning to show up. They show up much less in the ideological subjects, because there it doesn't matter so much if people have, you know, there isn't, it, profits aren't made by historians having original ideas about the French Revolution so they can have conventional ideas. And that means that the, the pressure to try to support innovation and freedom is much less, and the, profession, the pressures for conformity, on the other hand, are much greater, because in the ideological subjects, it begins to be dangerous if people think the wrong thoughts. It's not so dangerous if they have new ideas about physics. Uh, so, so you get, but nevertheless, you know, you, there's, you begin to get a little flux in the system by the time you get to graduate school. And even at lower levels, you find it. I mean, there's, you know, there are teachers who do stimulate thought, and sometimes they get away with it. And uh, all the way through, uh, you know, if, if people are learning things, you just, you just can't control, you can't make them just regurgitate what they heard. Now, there's a lot of pressure to turn the schools into the Marine Corps, uh, and there's a lot of support for it. Uh, for example, there's this bestseller last couple of years by Alan Bloom. Uh, that was all over the supermarkets, closing of the American mind. Yeah, whichever, you know, huge bestseller supermarket racks, which is where I read it, and things like that. Uh, well, you take a look at what he's saying. Uh, and, and there was plenty of, you know, a lot of enthusiastic uh, accolades for it and so on. Uh, he was saying that a couple of us smart guys will decide what the great thoughts are, uh, and every student will memorize them, and that's education. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, that's a way to turn people into pure automata. I mean, even if they happen to pick the great thoughts. Uh so you get the gist there, right? He's suggesting, obviously, that conformity being obedient doesn't necessarily serve our young people. And I want to share with you 
from the Milgram experiment, that's the study I was thinking of earlier, is just how we fall prey to authority. Now, look, I get it. You're a young person. You obviously need to abide by authority to a certain extent. But look what's happened with COVID. Look what's happened with the situation with COVID where people have put in, been put in such fear that rather than empowering themselves and doing look, I'm not saying that vitamin D and zinc are going to solve all your problems with COVID. Hear me out. I'm not saying it's going to solve all your problems. All I'm saying is if you're going to go out there and there's going to be a pandemic, don't we at least want to give ourselves the best opportunity to fight this thing that we possibly can? And if you talk to doctors, they're going to share with you, hey, take vitamin D, take zinc, exercise, keep yourself healthy. That's going to help build your immune system. But when you get put in a fearful state, you fall prey to not thinking and processing correctly, accurately, and it makes you that much more susceptible to conformity, obedience, things of that nature. I want to share with you how we fall prey to this really quickly. Really, again, with the Milgram experiment, these are people that were randomly selected. They showed up. Person's got a white coat on, all right? They're not even necessarily exactly an MD. Person's got a white coat on. And watch, even when you know, I shouldn't be doing this, this isn't right, watch how quickly someone can step in because they've got a perceived perception of power, politicians, perceived perception of power. And this person's like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to follow through on this, even though I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyways. Here is just this clip I want to share with you, and then we're going to wrap things up here. But I think this is important to see from a from a psychological standpoint. It actually 50% of the subjects obey the experimenter's commands fully in the experiment depicted in this film. On a 65 hold. Time. Continue, please. Go on. There's a lot of them here. You know, you have a heart condition there. You want me to go? Just continue, please. Sharp. Axe, needle, stick, blade. Ask, please. Wrong. I'm up to 180 volts. Please continue, teacher. Needle, you're going to get a shot. 180 volts. Listen closely. The experiment requires that you continue teaching. Yeah, but uh, I'm not going to get that man sick of that. Look at these hollering in there. Whether the learner likes it or not, we must go on until you learn all the words. Uh, I refuse to take the responsibility of getting hurt in there. I'm not getting under hollering. It's absolutely essential that you continue teaching. There's too many left here. I mean, geez, he gets wrong here. There's too many of them left. Listen closely, watch. And who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens to Continue, all right, next one. Slow. Wrong. Wow. Answer is next. Person says, hey, I'm responsible. Don't worry about it. And then the guy's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Then you saw there he went ahead and did it anyways. All right, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We're going to continue to have these afternoon shows. I appreciate everybody's comments. 
Um, join us tonight. You're going to see uh, Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford's conversation there, at least 20 minutes of it or so. So please join us tonight, 6.30 p.m. on KX4. Thank you for being part of the Point of View community. Um, it is such an honor to have you guys join us here every single day. Share your points of view, your comments with the show as well. We're going to continue to be a community of action, Team America, community of action, focusing on loving this nation, the things that we stand for, for freedom, and going out and making a difference within our community. So have a great rest of your day. Please share this video with family and friends. And again, thank you very much for tuning in.